This is a podcast from Minute Media. Welcome to the Kyle Coster Show presented by The Big Lead. Let's talk some baseball. It's been a long winter. We weren't sure we were going to get it. I have a great guest today. I don't say that every single time because sometimes the guest isn't that great, but this is legitimately a good one. I'm saying 8.4, 8.5 out of 10, a repeat performance. It's Britt Giroli from The Athletic. She's a national baseball writer there. And I want to start right here. Thank God we have baseball, right? Because for many months, I think the public, and I'll include myself in that group was like, I don't want to get too invested in this. It's going to be awesome if we get a decent amount of baseball. A lot of people renounced their fandom, said the sport was dead. And in retrospect, that kind of looks a bit silly, knowing that we're going to start on April 7th and get a full 162-game schedule. Was there a moment you were concerned we weren't going to get any at all? I was never concerned we weren't going to get any at all, but I was definitely concerned that we weren't going to get 162. I think, um, you know, you have to credit both the league and the players union for agreeing to kind of smush them all in to have an abbreviated spring training. Um, I didn't think the sport could handle like one year of no baseball, but I certainly didn't think in January and February when things were so contentious that April 7th would be opening day. I would have told you like, Hey, like cool it. You're, you're a little too optimistic for me. So it's great. I think the sport needed to get a full season in um, coming off of the COVID shortened season coming off of just basically everything that's going on in the world. I think it was a tough sell to say, well, we couldn't agree on the money. We're going to punt another year. I think it probably would have done some real damage to the sport that probably couldn't have been fixed. One of the interesting things about this labor dispute is that it was covered in a way that previous ones weren't. Ben Strauss had a great piece for the Washington Post recently talking about this. Maybe I want to just ask, is covering like the business side of baseball something that you enjoy? Is it a necessary evil or is it something that you kind of attacked reluctantly at first, but have gotten better out of necessity? It's not something I enjoy. Um, What I enjoy most is the stories on the field, getting to know players, those kinds of stories. Um, And the investigative stuff as well. I think that's important and that is certainly draining, but it has an important role. Um, Labor stories to me, um, there's never a good guy, um, right? I think there's always a lesser of two evils. And certainly this one, you're right, was painted as um, kind of the players really after getting hosed in the last two CBAs, being that lesser of two evils, fighting to for the greater good, to make the game better. Um, But the incremental updates, the how long they're meeting for, the 40 plus days where they didn't do anything. As somebody who's incredibly type A, the way that whole process moves is maddening. So I don't enjoy any part of the labor process at all. I think most casual fans of the sport were like, hey, wake me up when baseball starts, right? It's only a small segment um, of them and of course of the media that's really paying attention to this. Um, But certainly I think the players having a voice mattered. Social media now being a much bigger thing enabled the players to have that bigger voice. And I think we're at a point as a society where we kind of look at big business and billionaires in a different light than maybe we did 10, 20 years ago, 
we hear about all the time about corruption, about wanting to keep wages low, um, about all of these things that are going on in Major League Baseball, um, certainly on a richer scale than your average worker. But I think that also tilted the, the scales in the players' favor as well. You know, in years past, I think it was kind of presented uh, one side. Uh, like you said, we kind of have seen how the system as a whole can, can bear down on, you know, the less financially liquid. And I, you know, maybe you could argue that the, the pendulum swung a little bit too far this time, but just like with anything, you know, it's a, it's a give and take. And I think that, you know, if it, if it went too far in some cases, in some people's opinions this time, then that's just a good starting point for the next one, which hopefully uh, is not going to be around the corner. So let's actually talk some ball. Um, I want to approach this like if someone hasn't been paying attention very closely over the winter to but what's been going on in baseball, just kind of hit like the big storylines as a guiding post for this upcoming season. And it seems like the best place to identify right off the bat is the Dodgers, who are rumored to have maybe the most fearsome lineup in baseball history. I'm always careful when there are hyperbolic statements like that out there. Uh, just because I think I've lived through maybe the best starting pitching rotation of my lifetime, failing to win a world series. Where do you see the Dodgers? Are they, is it possible that they're better than last year and how scared should other teams be about that juggernaut? I think it's definitely possible that they're better than last year because adding Freddie Freeman just puts you totally over the top, right? You're talking about a guy who's been a perennial all-star, a silver slugger, gold glove, um, a guy who, gives the Dodgers what they didn't need, right? They didn't need another great player. The Dodgers were still going to be good with or without Freddie Freeman. But the second things didn't work out with Atlanta and he went to LA, LA went from, in my opinion, a really good team to a super team. Um, there are still little lingering questions, I think, about the rotation, uh, how it's going to hold up long-term. But that lineup, every position, they're just stacked. And you look at that payroll and they've really become kind of that one big evil empire of a team. It's not the Yankees and it hasn't been the Yankees for quite some time. Um, you look at the Dodgers, two years ago, they won it all. And they really want this window to be now. They want to win again. They want to continue winning. And I think getting Freeman really just put them over the edge. Obviously Clayton Kershaw coming back is nice. They've made some other moves as well. Uh, but Freeman is the big fish. He's the guy that's really going to change the complexion of things in that national league. And I just don't see how you don't see how you don't say that the Dodgers are the best team right now in the NL and probably the best team in baseball as well. Yeah, I agree. We just saw a World Series that was won on no starting pitching, essentially, and a lights out bullpen in Atlanta. But then to see the heart and soul of their offensive attack in the clubhouse go to a competitor has to be so crushing to that fan base and that franchise. The biggest free agent out there this offseason chose something surprising in Carlos Correa going to the Minnesota Twins. He said it was the Juicy Lucy that put him over the top and not the money. I think, you know, maybe Scott Boris, uh, you know, I, that's a nice thing to say. I think uh, the contract is uh, maybe set some things up for Boris that he would appreciate and is going to help him long term. But the Twins, not seen as a traditional power, not seen as a team that necessarily wants to break the bank for superstars what are they getting in Korea and what does that mean for their chances to compete immediately in the American League well you're getting a seven or eight war player 
guy who was the top free agent in this year's class, a electric player, someone who doesn't mind being the center of attention. He wore the Astro scandal. He didn't mind being booed. He spoke to everyone. Um, he was okay kind of being that face, which is why I think a lot of people thought he was headed for the bright lights of a big city. And to see him in Minnesota, it's a couple important things, I think, about that deal, the way it's structured. If he has a big year, he can opt out, and the Twins will either pay him even more or another team will pay him even more. And he just switched to Boris Corp, so this contract doesn't go to Scott Boris. It goes to his old agent. So it would behoove Scott Boris to not sign the big $10 million, $300 million, 10-year, $300 million deal until after this old agent gets paid, which is really interesting to think about as well. I think for the twins, it kind of catapults them from fringe contender into legitimate contender. Though I still think when you look at their pitching staff, they don't really have anyone. You have Sonny Gray, they have Dylan Bundy, and then a bunch of youth. I think they need to get maybe a starter from the Oakland A's who are basically selling everything not nailed down um, to really contend with the Chicago White Sox, to really put themselves into the division race and not just we're a wild card hopeful team. But on the grander scale, I think what it does is it says, hey, if the Twins can try and the Twins can go out and pay a ton of money for the best player that's available, why can't all these other teams, right? Why can't we see this in Cleveland? Why can't we see this in Cincinnati? Why can't we see this in Pittsburgh and Baltimore? Um, and so I think it, it is important for the sport in that regard. And if there's been one theme of this lockout, Kyle, post, post lockout, if there's been one theme for baseball, it's been all these opt-outs. And I wonder if we're now trending toward a sport where we're not signing guys to 10-year contracts and 12-year contracts. We're going to pay them a lot of money for two-year deals and three-year deals and let them opt out. And if these savvy front offices are much better with the risk involved of paying a shorter contract with a very high average annual value because you're getting them off the books quicker instead, Carlos Correa, to me, is a big example of that. As soon as they heard he was willing to take a shorter deal, the Twins were interested. They were not interested in, in a six, seven, 10-year type of deal. And that's ultimately how they were able to get a guy like Correa. Yeah, and I wonder what that means for front offices going forward. I would think that it would require more skill to make more moves over a shorter period of time instead of just, you know, these Albert Pujols deals. So you, you're locked in for a long time. And I think that a lot of times for a fan base is that really drives them down and makes them feel like they're dragging this weight. And I think that can have real detrimental effects because those last five years often they don't age well, uh, like a 1990s comedy. Uh, you start to be like, oh, we're still sticking around with this. And I feel a little bit different about investing my time and energy into this. The antithesis of how the Braves won the World Series last year would probably be the New York Mets this year as they try to put together kind of like the best pitching rotation and have that one-two punch by bringing in Max Scherzer, who is just a fantastic competitor uh, he's as old as I am, but I feel like he's pretty spry and youthful and has a lot in the tank. Do you think that there's a place in the game where two dominant starters can get you where you need to go anymore? Or has it changed so much that that's not really the effective like weapon that it once was? I hope so, because I love watching Jacob DeGrom and, make, and Max Scherzer pitch. And I hope 
maybe if the Mets win, it's a copycat league that maybe we're trending back toward great starting pitching. I mean, keep in mind the Braves did win last year on the strength of their bullpen, but the Dodgers in 2020 had a solid rotation. The Nationals in 2019, probably the real example because Scherzer was part of that and they had a historically bad bullpen and they were just able to outpitch everyone in the rotation. They had Steven Strasburg, Patrick Corbin, Anibal Sanchez, and those four, they just rode for seven or eight innings. And I think if the Mets go deep into the postseason, that's what we're going to see. Um, they're going to need that bullpen to hold up. They're going to need guys like Trevor May. They're going to need Diaz, who's their closer. Uh, and they're certainly going to need their lineup. And they've made some good acquisitions in the field as well. Eduardo Escobar, Marcana, uh, Starling Marte. They've done a good job of upgrading everywhere. But I really hope that we're getting back a little bit to placing an emphasis on starting pitching. And if Jacob deGrom is healthy and Max Scherzer stays healthy, I think the, the Mets are kind of the team to beat in the NL East. Yeah, the Braves made a lot of moves, most notably signing Matt Olson to that extension after they traded for him. And you can kind of argue over whether that was a better move than Freddie Freeman, depending on if you're a Braves fan, where your heart lies there. Um, but I think that on paper, having a two-headed monster like deGrom and Scherzer, you just have the ability to totally dominate other teams and flummox them for two-thirds of the game and if the Mets are able to get anything out of their bullpen I think they're going to be a really fun team to watch what do you make of Fernando Tatis Jr what's going on there um not being able to play will require surgery claimed that he couldn't be in communication with the team about getting the work done because of the labor strife um asked which accident it was. They think there might've been a motorcycle involved. What's the level of concern out there, both for him getting on the field this year. And then, like I mentioned before with that contract, which maybe Bryce Harper has one that's, that's commensurate to it, but what type of risk could the Padres be looking at if for some reason this doesn't go like they expected it to go maybe a year ago? Yeah, this is a fascinating storyline to me because, um, not only did Tatis get into a motorcycle accident, not tell the team, uh, but he also didn't go get it checked out either. He didn't think anything was wrong. And there's a lot of things wrong here. And I was talking to somebody in baseball about this just earlier today. If Manny Machado had done this, imagine the uproar. People would have said, you know, he doesn't like baseball. He's just selfish, blah, blah, blah. You don't hear any of that about Fernando Tatis, right? We still hear he's young, he's immature, he needs to learn. Um, he's not a rookie anymore. He's got a decent amount of big league time under his hands. Yes, he's young, but he came up young and his dad was in the big leagues. And I just wonder when we're going to stop using that as an excuse, because I think people around the game are absolutely an just flabbergasted that this could happen. I think the Padres are certainly furious about this, but you can't really do anything. You can't prove exactly when this happened. So you're not going to be able to avoid that deal. And you don't want to risk alienating a young superstar who you signed this big of a contract. So it really comes down to, in my opinion, Bob Melvin, who's their new manager, finding somebody who can keep Tatis in line, who can really mentor him and bring him along and get him to mature, get him to that point where he's not riding motorcycles anymore. He's thinking about baseball. He's not pouting. Um, he deleted, I think every post, but one on his Instagram because of all the hate that he was getting. It kind of tells you a little bit about his psyche as well. This is a guy who came up, 
was smiley and laughy and universally beloved. And at the first sign that maybe he's getting some pushback, um, we see how he reacts. So I, I think that there's a lot of growth that needs to go on for Tatis. I think he is going to come back at some point, hopefully sooner rather than later for them. I think at least like a month they're saying right now. Um, and he's a huge part of what they're trying to do, not just this year, but moving forward. But the Padres have to find some way to move him along, not, not just on the field, but off the field. They have to find somebody who's going to be able to mentor this guy because it's clear that nobody has ever told him no, that he doesn't have that real sense of wrong and right. And it would be really unfortunate if somebody that talented squandered it and never really achieved everything because of injuries. And it's not just this injury as well. I mean, we've seen the issue with the shoulder, how he had to change his swing. Um, you know, this to me becomes more and more worrisome every time that guy gets hurt because we've seen the way he plays on the field and people have said, well, he can't slow down. That's the way he plays. He plays reckless. Um, there's going to have to be some kind of adjustment made in my mind, in my book, there's going to have to be something um, that's done with him some kind of reckoning if they're going to maximize that contract, if they're going to maximize Fernando Tatis in his prime years. If you criticize a player, or you suggest that there's some growing up to do. It's almost seemed like you can't do that at all, but also this team has such an incredible investment in him. He is the future at a certain point. He owes it for the on-field performance to be there. So it's been a really interesting story because he is young. He is charismatic. You're exactly right. If it had been a more combustible or controversial player like Machado, you know, that might have even pierced through to get on like uh, Get Up or the national shows because it was Tatis Jr. And there's not really that, you know, we don't really have a history with him outside of knowing that he's this exciting young player. There's not really the drama or controversy there. The American League East going to be really good. The Toronto Blue Jays came very close last year to making some noise in the postseason. They got better. How would you power rank that division, which seems to be impressively deep? That, that division, it's a four-team race, really. Um, when you look at, you mentioned the Blue Jays, um, obviously they go out and, you know, they get Chapman, they get Gossman. I think that they're a better team than they were a year ago. And then you look at guys who are going to continue to get better. They're young players, Vlad Guerrero Jr., a big part of that. And to me, they're probably the pick to win the American League East. But then you look at Tampa Bay, and every year somehow they're in it. So do you really want to discount Tampa Bay? Um, the Yankees, to me, can go either way. I don't love the Josh Donaldson signing. I don't love an older team that already has injury issues taking on a guy who's older with injury issues. Um, I think that if they manage to stay healthy, Donaldson, Stanton, and Aaron Judge, okay. I think the COVID vaccine situation in New York, where they're not sure if they're going to be able to play home games in New York, they're not sure if unvaccinated players are going to be able to play in Toronto, could be a potentially significant game changer for the division. Um, it could certainly help Toronto if teams come in there and they're playing without a couple guys, especially if they're big guys. So I like those top three teams. I think that the Red Sox adding Trevor Story puts them firmly in the mix as well. I don't see them winning as we sit here today in March, but it also wouldn't surprise me if a team that exceeded expectations last year, now with the addition of Trevor Story, if Chris Sale is going to be okay, and that's really been kind of an issue health-wise for them for a little while, um, I could see them certainly 
vying for the division or at least being in the hunt for the wild card. And, you know, the Orioles are just really the league's punching bag at this point in time. But it's such a tough division that it's crazy we're sitting here and talking about how the COVID vaccination rules in New York could wildly impact the way that whole thing shakes out. That's what I really believe. I agree. I don't really think there's going to be this wand waved right before opening day that's going to solve everything. I mean, it could, but I mean, if you look at the Kyrie Irving situation, that's been going on and that's kind of come to a head for a long time. And I would say interest there is probably even greater than it is with the Yankees, even though they're the Yankees. I mean, when you look at what the NBA is and Kyrie Irving is, I mean, Aaron judge, yes, is a name that rises uh, to that level, but I still don't think, you know, that's going to be the tipping point uh, point of privilege. The Detroit Tigers had a surprising year last year. Feel like they're riding a lot of momentum. There was a lot of disappointment that they didn't get Correa. Uh, the ownership group didn't really want to take the big swing instead settled for Javi Baez, which will be incredibly exciting and entertaining. And they have two stars in Spencer Torkelson and Riley green coming up. What do you think is the best case scenario for this team this year? It still seems like they're at best a year off from really competing. Yeah, it's interesting. I spent uh, a day in Lakeland and was really surprised with the vibe there. I think you, if you didn't know it, you would think this team's a playoff team. Like the, the culture under AJ Hinch has been remarkable to watch. Um, I think if the twins hadn't gotten Correa, people would have certainly felt more comfortable penciling them ahead of Minnesota. And still, if Minnesota can't pitch, I think Detroit can do what it did last year after, you know, April was terrible for them, but really from May on, they played over 500. And, you know, I kind of wondered why. And I think a lot of the reasons is Hinch. Um, he kind of inspires those guys to you know, not look at projections, not worry about if people think that they're going to win. And they win the winnable games. Their base running was terrific last year. They're going to steal bases if they have kind of a group that's enabled them to steal bases. And they're better than they were a year ago. You know, they added Michael Pineda and Eduardo Rodriguez to take the pressure off those young starters. They trade for Tucker Barnhart, who's a veteran catcher, to help those young starters along. Javi Baez, I think, is probably a guy who's going to do much better away from New York. I don't think he handled the spotlight well. I think what he likes about Detroit is, you know, Miguel Cabrera is there. Jonathan Scope is there. He doesn't have to be the guy so much in Detroit. Um, and then they added Andrew Chafin as well to kind of help with that bullpen. Because I think for a young team, the worst thing you can do is have a bullpen that constantly loses games. You need to be able to close out games. Those are the worst kinds of losses. And Hinch knows that. And so they've really tried to construct a bullpen um, that is able to do that and that is able to kind of withstand um, some of the ups and downs of those starters. So I think that the central is going to be interesting for that reason. I think, you know, maybe the Royals and Tigers are a year away, but they're still on that upward trajectory where, you know, they could be good this year. And Detroit in particular has spent some money. Um, it's interesting that they offered Correa all that money before the lockout. And I think Correa was looking for, they offered him 275. He was looking for 300 million plus. And I just wonder if there had been more time, would Detroit have gotten involved? Um, but obviously they went and they get Javi Baez before the lockout. So it just didn't seem like it really fit quite as much. But, you know, if you had told these teams at the start of the offseason, Javi Baez would take the Twins deal. I think you would have had a lot more teams in on that. A lot more teams okay with something like that. Um, 
but I think Detroit to me is kind of like a team to watch. I think Seattle's a team to watch. I think Texas is a team also on the up. So the Mac to me, what's the maximum? Do I think they win the world series? No, but we have 12, we have expanded playoffs this year. We have 12 teams in the playoffs. Do I think they get into the playoffs? I think they could sneak in, but it's all predicated on that young talent taking a step forward, which is I think what the models can't project out, right? We don't know how good Riley Green's going to be. We don't know how good Spencer Torkelson's going to be. We don't know if Akil Badu is going to continue to get better. And that's why I think a lot of these projections are just kind of lukewarm on Detroit because they, they aren't sure what's going to happen with these young players. Do you like the 12-team playoff? Would you like the 14-team playoff? I was initially against it when it was proposed. I thought, you know, asking these teams to play 162 games and then to go on and on with the playoffs, it doesn't really reward the best teams. But the more I got thinking about it, and this is the one example where I will actually listen to like criticism and critiques that baseball is not popular enough. What's the most popular part of every sport? It's the way I consume the NBA. It's kind of the way I consume the NFL. I'll tune in down the stretch and then I'll be locked in for the playoffs because those are the most exciting games. So I've kind of come around on the idea that more playoff baseball would be a good thing because you're introducing the world to maybe 40% of the players in MLB. And then if they do something memorable, it's a good chance to establish a legacy and establish these postseason storylines, which I think because it's so such a small field year to year, there's not really an opportunity to grow on them. I mean, if you were to ask people on the street, what's a playoff storyline, they might be able to add, like, say, Clayton Kershaw struggles, or the Astros are always in it. But what if we expanded it out? And there was a like a larger group Uh, or a larger group of fans who became fans and interested when the calendar turned to October. What's your thought on growing the playoffs or keeping it the same? Yeah, I'm kind of with you. I was initially like, this is terrible. I I'm not a fan of 14 at all. I think you, you do start to water down the field, but the more I thought about it, like you do get to see some teams that, that are young and maybe aren't there yet. Like um, two years ago, I think the COVID season, like the Blue Jays and the Marlins kind of stumbled in like ahead of their time frame, And you were able to see these players that, you know, I don't watch the Marlins very often. I don't know if people watch the Blue Jays very often that aren't in Toronto. You're able to see these young players that are going to be good soon. And they were exciting and they were excitable and they were wearing their emotions. And I think that's good for the sport. And so I think adding the two playoff teams, having it be 12, you know, maybe you do see, some of these exciting young teams stumble and maybe Detroit stumbles in and, and, you know, that's a fan base that last five years hasn't had much to cheer about when it comes to the Tigers. So, you know, maybe that rejuvenates some of the fans going into next season. Right. So I do think that there are some positives when it comes to that. I think there can be too much of a good thing when it comes to expanding too far, then teams won't try during the regular season. Um, But I have come around to 12. I think it's going to be fun. It's going to be exciting. Um, And it seems like, at least for now, more teams are trying, knowing that, hey, the, you know, an 80 win team could make the postseason, Um, you know, maybe a team that's a little bit under 500 can make the postseason. So I think that that has at least been a little bit of a carrot for these smaller mid market teams, you know, a Carlos Correa can make the difference for the twins. Um, And that's good for the sport, knowing that it's not just a bunch of haves and have nots, giving those two extra slots. 
Yeah, we just, I mean, we're in the midst of the NCAA tournament and everybody loves a Cinderella, a Cinderella run. And that's what you get. I mean, sometimes it's 83 win Cardinals team uh, that wins the World Series. Last one for you. What are you most excited about this year? What is the one thing you're like, I can't wait for opening day to get here to see this? Oh, gosh. I think there's so much. Um, I want to watch Otani more. I want to watch Shohei Otani more. I feel like being on the West Coast, I don't get to watch him that much. So I'm going to start setting my phone when the Angels are out here on our time zone um, on the Eastern time so that I can watch him a little bit more. Um, I'd love to see that. You know, I want to see, I guess, teams that, you know, like the Twins and Carlos Correa, does that work out? Teams that spend. I would like to see the teams that spend do well because I think it's it's a good precedent to send rather than, you know, these these low-budget rays kind of hanging around. I, I think I'd like to see the teams that tried really hard in the winter do very well. I'd love to see the Mets do great. Under Buck Showalter, I covered him for a long time in Baltimore. I think they're on the up and up. Um, to me, there's just so many intriguing storylines. Saya Suzuki um, in Chicago, how does he do in the U.S.? How's that acclimation period going? Um, there's so many storylines. Do the Yankees continue their drought? You know, they haven't won since 2009. Fans continue to get angry every year. And I think if the Yankees aren't able to deliver, there's got to be some massive changes with that way that organization works, with the way it's structured. Um, so you really you can go around every division and there's like one or two things I'm looking for, one or two things I'm watching for. Um, can Seattle do what they did last year with the, you know, the, sh- the kind of shocking everyone and playing off of Ted Lasso and having the believe signs and um, can they finally go to the postseason and, you know, give that fan base something. Uh, that's what I love about baseball. So there's so many different things to look forward to in spring, like when you get out of spring training and almost every fan base has hope. I'm sorry, Pittsburgh. And I'm sorry, Baltimore. There's just no hope there, but everyone else, especially with the expanded playoffs, why not them? You know, why not us? I love that feeling going into opening day uh, around the country of teams just being like, why not us? Yeah. And I think there's been so much change and we've seen teams get there before we thought there really were. It doesn't seem like there's a stranglehold on the top in the way that there was even a few years ago. I mean, yeah, the money disparity is there, but teams have smartly figured out how to do it on a budget. Look at the Tampa Bay Rays and their success. That's Britt Giroli. She is senior writer for The Athletic covering baseball. Thanks so much for joining us. And uh, you know what? Get some sleep. I know it's going to be a long year for you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. 